0: Amen. Would you turn with me on this final night to Matthew 27, Matthew 27, and let me share what a privilege it has been to be among you and serve you in spite of Brian. I told him I'd get the last word. No, it really has been a thrill to to serve you the word of God, and I pray that more than this pitiful preacher that God has been speaking to your heart and life. I ask you when the Lord lays me on your heart to pray for me. I'm about to do a Zoom meeting into India. I can't go right now. I'd rather be there in person, but I'll be Zooming instead. So pray for that coming up and uh, other opportunities in South Africa and different parts of the world. Tonight, I want to speak to you from two verses that I believe are the most profound verses in the entirety of the Word of God. The title of the message tonight is The Amazing Agony of Abandonment. And I pray the Holy Spirit would use these mighty truths to pierce our hearts. Some for the first time, some afresh and anew tonight. It's the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. He's gone through all manner of physical torture. But notice verse 45. It's 12 o'clock noon. And now from the sixth hour, 12 noon, until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Martin Luther spent three hours at his desk studying verse 46. And after three hours, he stood up and said, God, forsaken by God? Who can understand it? Who can fathom it? Now, that word forsaken in my New King James, it's, it's a sad and sobering word, isn't it? All kind of terrible uh, concepts come to our mind when we think about this word from our vocabulary forsaken, a husband abandoned by his wife, or a wife forsaken by his husband, or or parents abandoning little children, or uh, older parents being abandoned by their adult children. Uh, The word forsaken is a sad and sobering word, but you know there's something infinitely more horrific Than being abandoned by another person. And that is the terrible reality of being forsaken by God. It would be the hell of all hells to be abandoned by God. Because when you've been forsaken by God. There's nowhere else to turn. But here in the fourth cry of God the Son. From the cross I believe we find the most profound verse in the entirety of the Bible. For we hear God the Son screaming to God the Father. Why have you forsaken me? And dear friends, within these verses, we find the true meaning of the cross. There's a whole lot of folks that tend to look at the cross and focus on all the physical torture that the Lord Jesus endured in those hours. It was 17 years ago now that the unconverted Catholic director Mel Gibson uh, directed this famous movie called The Passion of the Christ, which was nothing more and nothing less than the Roman Catholic stations of the cross put on a screen. And hundreds of millions of people were deeply moved emotionally when they observed actors attempting to impersonate the physical suffering that God the Son endured. I didn't see that movie. You know why? Because faith comes up by what? Hearing, not seeing, and hearing by the word of God. But God's calling us to look far beyond a movie, far beyond physical sufferings that the Lord Jesus endured at the hands of men. And he's calling on us to behold the three hours of spiritual suffering that God the Son endured at the hands of the Father on behalf of any sinner and every sinner who will come to Jesus on his terms. It's in these three hours of darkness that we behold the real crucifixion within the crucifixion. It is in the blackness of the darkness that God the Father made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that sinners might become the righteousness of God in Him. And I submit to you tonight that this scream that we're allowed to read about is the most profoundly shocking scream ever heard on this planet. But it can also be the most precious scream to anyone and everyone who will truly repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Three, I pray very clear and concise points tonight. First of all, we'll look at the setting, and then we'll look at the scream, and then finally, the significance of the scream. First of all, the setting in which this amazing agony of abandonment took place. Did you notice it in verse 24, uh, verse 45, excuse me? Now when the sixth hour had come, 12 o'clock noon, there was darkness over the whole land, Until 3 p.m. It's midday. And suddenly there is a midnight blackness of darkness. The sun, as it's at its apex, it's at its zenith, in its strength. And suddenly there is a supernatural, miraculous blackness of darkness that covers the entire land. A darkness that was so thick and deep that it could be felt. The gospel writer Luke puts it this way, the light of the sun failed. And anyone in Palestine on that day in the midst of that miraculous darkness would have been acutely aware that something supernatural is taking place. Now, I remind you in all those earlier hours of Jesus' physical sufferings at the hands of men, well, he suffered in broad daylight for everyone to see. But these three hours of spiritual suffering at the hands of God were completely covered in an amazing shroud of darkness. Now, why darkness at noonday? Well, one reason is throughout the scriptures, darkness is synonymous with sin and wickedness in the Bible. Jesus said if your eye is evil, your whole body is filled with what? Darkness. (laughs) The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehended. Unconverted men, women, young people love the darkness of their self-centered, self-directed, self-pleasing life. They hate the light of a Jesus-centered, Jesus-directed, Jesus-pleasing life. Even in the Old Testament, the writer of Proverbs says, the way of the unconverted person is as darkness. And these religious leaders, also religious, so up to their eyeballs in all manner of religious rules and regulations and rituals, but absolutely lost in their sins and there is the Messiah, they're crucifying their own Messiah, and they're reviling him, they're mocking him on the cross. You remember they said, if you're the Christ, if you're the Son of God, let's see you climb off of that cross. Then we'll, what? See and believe. Oh, God sent them a sign, all right. But it was a sign representing their utter blindness to their own Messiah. They were under the power of darkness. They were doing the works of darkness because they loved the darkness rather than the light. That's one reason there's darkness, but the predominant reason that there was this sudden supernatural blackness of darkness is this, that this kind of miraculous darkness throughout the Old Testament, whenever you saw a manifestation of miraculous darkness, it always represented the presence of God pouring out his wrath Against sin and sinners. Now, in many passages in the Old Testament, the presence of God was manifested as supernatural life, wasn't it? But there's also other places in the Old Testament where the presence of God was manifested as a miraculous supernatural blackness of darkness, and that always represented not the absence of God, but the presence of God pouring out his undiluted wrath and judgment against sin. Do you remember when God told Moses to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt, and God God sent ten plagues of judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, didn't he? And one of those plagues, one of those judgments, was a judgment of darkness. Exodus 10, 21 says, Darkness was over the whole land of Egypt, even a darkness which could be felt. For three days, there was a thick supernatural darkness that was so terrifying that it paralyzed the Egyptians with fear. And that darkness was a powerful symbol, a powerful manifestation, not of the absence of God, but of the presence of God pouring out his wrath on Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. Do you remember what Jude calls hell? Everlasting chains of what? Darkness. The Lord Jesus himself said, Many shall be taken away and cast into outer what? Darkness, where there shall be weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. Another writer calls hell the blackness of darkness Forever. Eternal hell is repeatedly uh, pictured as a supernatural blackness of darkness. And we often think that this blackness of darkness is the absence of God. But friends, it's not the absence of God. That supernatural eternal darkness is the presence of God. Pouring out his eternal wrath, his eternal judgment on unconverted sinners. Listen to Revelation 14 10. The unconverted, they shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? They will be eternally tormented in the presence of the Lamb. The black hole of the lake of fire is not the absence of God, it's the presence of the Lamb unleashing his everlasting wrath, his unmitigated, undiluted wrath in eternal judgment on every sinner who never comes to Jesus on his conditions. Wait a minute, Brother Ed. 2 Thessalonians 1 says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who have not obeyed the gospel, and they will experience everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. So, which one is it? Is it the absence of the Lord or is it the presence of the Lord well it's going to be the absence of God's love his grace his mercy but it's not going to be the absence of God it's going to be the unleashing of God's holy indignation and just animosity against those who do not Obey the gospel, dear friends. Satan is not the Lord of hell. He's going to be an eternal inhabitant in hell. But he's not the Lord of hell. Amen. Amen. And we're talking about the Bible here. Not our preconceived notions and ideas. We're talking about the Bible here. Billions of people who do not repent and believe the gospel will suffer the wrath of God in the presence of the Lamb forever if they don't repent and believe. That's what the Bible says. What does this have to do with the cross? This has everything to do with the cross. At midday, it suddenly becomes midnight. And a startling miracle of supernatural darkness is powerfully declaring that a unique and concentrated work of the presence of God's justice was being manifested as God the Father unleashed an equivalent of the eternity of his wrath and holy fury against sin and the sinners who do repent and believe, he poured that wrath out on his sinless son as the substitute. Amen? God turned out the lights. Because he was judging sin in his son. God's real wrath was being poured out against the real sins of a number of real sinners that no man can number. And that holy hostility and just animosity was expended and exhausted on the Lamb of God. On behalf of any sinner and every sinner who will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the setting. Miraculous darkness. Oh, but let's look at the screen. It's three o'clock in the afternoon, after three hours of this blackness of darkness, Jesus, God the Son, cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, did you notice in the verse that this was a supernatural scream? He cried with a loud voice. It's the Greek word from which we get the word mega, like a megaphone. He cries with a mega voice. Now remember, he's been on the cross for many hours now, slowly smothering and suffocating, pushing on his feet to get every single breath. And you combine that with the tremendous loss of blood and the incredible neuropathic pain that he has been experiencing for hours now. His humanity is completely weakened and at the point of physical death, it would seem impossible that he could scream with a mega voice. But that's what the text says. It was a supernatural scream, but there was another reason it was a supernatural scream. Because for the last three hours, he had been actually enduring the full equivalent of an eternity spent in hell on behalf of any and every sinner who will come to him on his turn. Now, have you thought about that? How could he endure and exhaust an equivalent of an eternity separated from God and pay that price in the space of only three hours? There's only one explanation. He's God. He is an infinite, He is an eternal being, so he was able to suffer the equivalent of an infinite and an eternal extent of the just wrath of God as our substitute in our place, on our behalf, and for a number that no man can number and fully extinguish it. Supernatural screams. Thank God it was also a substitutionary scream. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Luther was saying. How can God be forsaken by God? Because from all eternity past, long before he spoke this universe into being, the Lord Jesus was the supreme. Object of the immeasurable, immutable, infinite, eternal love of the Father. He says in his great high priestly prayer, Father, you loved me from before the foundation of the world. In the same prayer, he says, And now, will Father, glorify me together with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the creation of time and space, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit enjoyed that infinite, incomprehensible fellowship of the Trinity. Even after God the Son left the glory of heaven, took on the form of a man and walked on this earth, he walked on it in perfect fellowship with the Father. The text calls Jesus, Hebrews 7, He is holy, harmless, and undefiled. Holy in relationship to the Father. Harmless in relationship to man. Undefiled in relationship to his own being. Oh, friends, he knew the hatred of enemies. He knew the forsaking of friends. He walked through every temptation, trial, trouble, tribulation that we could ever possibly walk through. But he walked through it all in perfect fellowship with the Father. What did the Father keep saying from heaven? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am what? Well pleased. Perfectly obeying the law of God. Perfectly loving the Father. Perfectly pleasing the Father. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember, he prays to the Father. Father, if it's possible, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. That cup representing the eternity of the undiluted wrath of God that was about to be unleashed on Jesus, the cup that he would drink to the dregs. The text says his soul was exceedingly sorrowful even unto death because he who knew no sin, he who despises sin, he whose wrath must judge and punish sin was soon to be the sin bearer. The curse bearer. The judgment bearer. And he was so distressed of soul, the text says that his sweat was as if it were drops of blood, large drops of blood. But you know he walked through that hour in perfect fellowship with the Father. Nevertheless, not my will, Father, but your will be done. Oh yes, we can look on a movie screen and we can see soldiers slapping him and spitting in his face and, and beating him as they mock him. Then you see, we can see the, the Roman scourge. Pilate of uh, Matthew 27, same chapter, verse 26 says, Pilate had the Lord Jesus scourged. It's quite notable to me that the word of God does not focus on all the gory details of a scourging that a Hollywood director can focus on. It simply says he was scourged. Then they took him to the Roman praetorium. The soldiers begin to mock him. They put a fake robe on him, a fake crown on him. And they begin to say, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they did take that fake scepter and beat that crown of thorns until it was deep into his skull. But he went through all of that physical beating and suffering that I just spoke about in perfect fellowship. With the Father. As the spikes went through his wrists and his feet. Every nerve had to scream in pain. As the cross went into the ground. Every bone must have jumped out of joint. And now as he's suffering this horrible physical pain. The mob around him are deriding him. They're reviling him. And the Greek language says. He kept on saying. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In the garden, he cries, Father, let this cup pass from me. In the midst of all the physical torture, he prays, Father, forgive them. Oh, but at the end of those three supernatural hours of blackness, of darkness, he does not scream, Father. For the first time in the Gospels, he screams, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? I submit to you, dear friends, because it was in these three hours that he was pierced for the transgressions of and crushed for the iniquities of. Any and every sinner who will repent and believe. It was in these three hours of blackness, of darkness, that it pleased Jehovah God the Father to crush Jehovah God the Son. It was in these three hours that he laid on Jesus the iniquity of repenting and believing sinners. It was in these hours of darkness that he bore the full weight of, of an eternity of God's wrath. It was in the blackness of the darkness that God the Father treated God the Son as if he were a sinner, though a sinner he could never be. As if he committed the sins of every sinner who will ever repent and believe. The gospel until out of the blackness of darkness, Dr. R.C. Sproul puts it well, he screamed the scream of the damned. Now, dear church member, visitor, you should be the one screaming the scream of the damned. I should be the one screaming the scream of the damned. We should be the ones who are eternally accursed and condemned. We should be the ones who are screaming, Why have you forsaken me? Because we are the ones who have shattered God's commandments thousands of times. We are the ones who have utterly failed to love the Lord our God with 100% of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are the ones who have failed to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We are the ones who have robbed God of the glory that He has due in our life with the mountains of sins against Him. We are the ones who should scream, the scream of the damned forever and yet the sinless spotless son took the place of received the judgment and the wrath for any sinner and every sinner who will repent and believe The setting? Supernatural darkness. The scream? And then finally, the significance. What's the significance of this scream? What are the implications that should grip every person's mind in this room in light of this sacred scream of God the Son in the place of sinners? Well, the first thing I should be gripped with is that the the significance of this scream should remind me that the God to whom I must give an account is the God of pristine holiness. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is majestic. He is glorious in holiness. Who shall not fear you, O Lord? And glorify your name, for you alone are holy. When we think of that word holy, we, we should think of this. God is infinitely set apart from us in our humanness, in our fallenness, in our sinfulness. Dear friends, God is so holy that even the seraphim, the holy angels, in his immediate presence must hide their face in his presence. God is so holy that the number one most godly man of his era, who was walking on this planet during his era, his name was Job. But when he encountered God, he said, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. God is so holy that the prophet man, the preacher man, Isaiah, when he encountered the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus, he saw the pre incarnate glory of the holiness of God the Son. He called down a curse on himself. He said, Woe is me, I am undone. He pronounced judgment on himself. He said, I am coming to pieces, I am shattered. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When you hear Jesus scream, this sacred scream, you should be reminded that the God to whom we must stand before is a God of pristine holiness, but also he's a God of inflexible justice. I've mentioned that this week. I want to hone in on it. God is a God of inflexible, uncompromising justice. He's a just God. There's no injustice in him. Amen? And every person will receive either justice or mercy from God. No one will receive injustice. Now listen to this psalmist. God is a just God and he's angry with the wicked every day. Now his anger is not like your anger and my anger. He doesn't blow his fuse. He doesn't lose his temper. He, he, you know, he doesn't, uh, uh, his anger is absolutely fixed and settled. It is a just indignation. It is a holy fury. In the best day of an unconverted sinner brings the curse of God on them. And the condemnation of God on them. Because God is a God of inflexible justice. When I hear God the Son screaming the scream of the damned, I'm reminded that God is a God of pristine holiness and inflexible justice. And because he is, God takes your sin and my sin seriously. Now most of us don't take our sin seriously. We tend to excuse our sin or explain away our sin or blame our sin on other people or circumstances or even ignore our sin. We don't take our sin as seriously as we should, but God takes every one of your sins very seriously. As a matter of fact, every sin we commit, although it may be against a person, another person, they're all directly committed against God. That's why when the prodigal son finally came to himself as a lost sinner, he wasn't redecorating in the far country in the pig pen. He came to himself, Jesus teaching how God receives sinners. And when he came to himself, what did he say? I'm going to go home and say, I have sinned against heaven. (laughs) Literally, my sins have piled up into heaven. When King David was broken and contrite, what did he say? Against you. And you only have I sinned. Wait a minute. He sinned against his family. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the army. He sinned against the entire nation. Oh yes he did. But when he came under conviction and contrition he saw all of his sin as being primarily against God. And everybody in this room has sinned against God. And if you say you have no sin, you make God a what? Liar. I've had the joy and privilege of preaching in the Bronx on a number of occasions and also in Brooklyn, New York. And one of those pastors took me up to the 102nd floor of the Empire State Building. Imagine I'm hanging out of that 102nd floor on a chain with 10 links. How many links must break for me to plummet to my death? Does it take five? One. You've kept the whole law and broken in one point. You're guilty of all. And God takes our sin seriously. How seriously? Listen to God the Son screaming. And listen, when I hear this sacred scream of the Lamb, I'm reminded that God abhors my sin passionately. And that's what the psalmist says in Psalms 5 and verse 5, which is equally as inspired as John 3.16. God so loved the world, God hates all workers. Of iniquity. And those who've not believed on Jesus. Two verses after John 3.16. Are condemned. Already. That's what Jesus said. When I think of John 3.16. We we usually think of. uh, The bigness of the world. Don't we? God so loved the world. Have you ever thought of it this way? The badness of the world. A god soul love for a world? Yeah, that's the picture. Those who haven't committed to their life to him, God abhors their sin so passionately, so justly that his wrath abides over that person. Not only their sins, as we heard earlier in the week, it abides over the sinner, John 3, 36. The wrath of God abides on him. Every sin requires God's hatred of it. Every unconverted sinner demands God's punishment of them. When we hear Jesus screaming the scream of the damned, we should be gripped with the truth that our God of inflexible justice and pristine holiness, who has a holy wrath abiding over unconverted sinners, must judge sin severely. God is fully committed to judging sin and punishing every one of your sins eternally. Either on Jesus, if you come to him on his terms, or on you. When we hear this sacred scream of the Son of God, We should be reminded of these truths, but there's one more truth. Thank God I don't have to end there. When I hear the scream from the lips of the Son of God, I'm reminded God has provided a substitute. Why was Jesus voluntarily willing to suffer the amazing agony of abandonment and to scream the scream of the damned? I'll tell you why. So that I might not be forsaken. That I might not be abandoned. And you might not be eternally abandoned if you'll come to Jesus on Jesus' condition. That's what was happening in the blackness of the darkness. Oh, plenty of people were crucified on crosses back in those days. Thousands upon upon thousands of people were crucified. Thousands were scourged. Oh, but in the blackness of the darkness, God himself gave himself to save us from himself and unto himself. That's what was taking place. God in human flesh gave himself as the sinless substitutionary sacrifice to save any repenting and believing sinner from himself. He'll be revealed in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel. God himself gave himself to save me from his wrath and unto his eternal glory. To worship him face to face and sing forever, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Amen? And so how do we come? On his terms? There must be a supernatural U-turn in your life. That's what happened to me at 29 years of age. There was a supernatural U-turn. I would been like a wandering sheep going in my own ways of wicked sinfulness and willful selfishness. But one night through the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit, there was a supernatural U-turn. Imagine with me that I'm driving back to uh, Ruston tonight and there's nobody else on the road. And there's total darkness. And all of a sudden I see a figure standing in the center of the road. We're using our imagination. And in the revelation of God, I realize it's the Lord Jesus himself. And he comes walking up to my car. He comes around. I roll down the window. Remember, we're using our imagination. I'd actually be dead laying on the pavement if he rolled walked up to the window. But let's just imagine he did. I roll down the window. And he says, Ed, I desire to ride with you. And I respond, Lord Jesus, I have heard the story about how you gave yourself to save me from your wrath. Please, won't you come and ride with me? And Jesus said, I would love to, but you need to understand something. If I'm coming in, I'm not coming in to be your co-pilot. I'm coming in to be the pilot. I'm coming in to take over. You're going to have to move over. I'm coming in to be the driver. And by the way, Ed, we're making a U-turn. You've been going your way. And there must be a supernatural U-turn. A turning away from your ways, your idols, your sins. You being the center of your universe. And a supernatural turn turning to me. Repentance toward God and saving faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done that I preached of tonight. Uh, Have you ever known Holy Spirit conviction where you were penetrated pierced to the heart because for the first time you saw your mountains of sins having been committed against God and you realized that God the Son was bearing this price that I've spoken about tonight in his body, on the tree, on your behalf, in your place, that he was being pierced for your personal transgressions against God. I'm not asking you if some preacher said to you, hey, admit you're a sinner. Okay, I admit I'm a sinner. No. I'm asking you, has the Holy Spirit ever penetrated and pierced your heart with conviction? You'd like to come with me tomorrow. We could come into our kitchen. My wife's a tremendous cook. And we could turn on that back eye on that stove. And we could get watch it get red hot. And I could say to you, would you admit that you, if you put your hand on that stove, it's going to burn your hand? And you would say, yes, I admit that. It's one thing to admit that. It's quite another thing to put your hand on that eye and feel it piercing through your nervous system. There is an infinite difference between admitting you're a sinner and being pierced to the heart because you realize your mountain of sins have been committed against God and it was he bearing your sin They will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn as one mourns over the premature death of a son. You ever known that anguish and alarm in your heart? Have you known that supernatural U-turn? Doesn't matter if you grew up on a church pew or a bar stool. There must be a supernatural U-turn. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Who's Jesus speaking to? That crowd in Jerusalem were up to their eyeballs in religion. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But God so loved you that he gave himself that whoever would believe in him, shall not perish. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that still tonight, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel, God's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood through genuine repentance and saving faith lose all their guilty stains. Father, if there are some in this room tonight, that have never been pierced to the heart, would you even now take the glorious message of the cross and that they would see him with the eyes of faith whom their sins have pierced and they will know that holy mourning, that godly sorrow at the foot of the cross. And even tonight, in that pew, there would be a supernatural U-turn toward you and saving trust and reliance on what you have accomplished Lord Jesus in the blackness of the darkness do it tonight for your glory in Jesus name you've heard the invitation I've been giving it for 50 minutes The message is the invitation. And there is a command to repent and believe. You can cry out to him right in that pew. He who believes in the heart, it starts private. It started private with me in my living room, but it got public. And it's been public ever since it may start private in your heart but if it's authentic it'll get public you need to testify believe in your heart and confess with your mouth jesus has become your lord that man that woman even sometimes a young person will here. We'd love to answer any questions. If you need to make public what has happened private, that'd be wonderful. But I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to ask you to parrot a prayer that's not in the New Testament. I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand. You know what happens when you raise a hand. Nothing. Nothing but I'm going to urge you today is the day of salvation if you've heard his voice do not harden your heart cry out to him even this night he's plenteous in mercy he's amazing in grace make that U-turn Become a follower of Jesus. When that happens, it'll get public. No doubt about it. Pastor.